chapter 5, we get to see an interesting story in which Jesus interacts with a Gentile man who's possessed by thousands of demons. See that in Mark chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 20. If this is the first time you've used a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. I'll be reading from verse 1 to to verse 20. They're in the book of Mark. And it says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs were there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. Let's pray. Lord, we know this morning that as we hear from your word that we need your spirit to help us. We are helpless without your help. And so we ask, Lord, that as we think about your word, as we think about your son's authority, as we think about the love that you've shown for us in the work of your son, that you would help us to delight in you and see your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see that God demonstrates his love for us in sending his son. And when Jesus arrives, things begin to change. Uh, Two weeks ago, we got to see Jesus uh, stilling the storm and, and showing his dominion over the physical world. In, in this section, we get to see Jesus interacting with a new group of people, Gentiles, and being able to bring them a gift. And all of us have experienced love from different people. We all know that people also receive love in different ways. And when Jesus arrives onto the scene, we get to see three different responses to Jesus' good work in the world. 
get to see the demons feel tormented. We get to see Gentile people actually rejecting Jesus. And then we see the example of the demon-possessed man begging to be able to remain with Jesus. In fact, we see three examples of begging, and that will be our points for this morning. So number one, we see the demons begging to stay. Second, we see the Gentiles begging Jesus to leave. And lastly, we see this formerly demon-possessed man begging to remain with Jesus. We'll start with point number one, begging to stay. Look, look with me again from chapter 5, verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. After Jesus silences the storm in front of his disciples, they crossed the sea into the Gerasenes, which is a Gentile area near the Decapolis, or a Gentile city. And, and ge- that word Gentile just means someone who wasn't an Israelite, in the same way that you may live in a civilization, and someone who doesn't live in a civilization may be a barbarian or foreigner to you. It's the same idea there for the Gentiles. And, and up until this point, we've seen Jesus interact mainly with Jewish people. We see him in the region of, of Galilee interacting with, with Jews there. He had been challenged by different teachers of the law, uh, even Pharisees that came from uh, the top-tier scholars of Jerusalem. And now he's leaving that area. He crosses the sea to interact with a new group of people, a group of people that aren't part of that nation of Israel. And as he comes to the shore of this uncharted territory, he's immediately confronted by opposition. You can see that in verse 2. It says, As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had tore the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. A man comes out that is described as having an unclean spirit. And and that word for unclean isn't just referring to how dirty he is. That he was like caked with muck and grime as much as he's detached, not just kind of physically or, or with dirt, but with a Spiritual defilement. This man is possessed by evil spirits. And and the effect of his spirit-filled life was utter misery. The the demons seemed to have cast him out into the tombs, separated from the rest of society, living in a cemetery. And spirits drive him there without allowing him to have any control over his body. And every day as he lives his life walking amongst these tombs, he's seeing physical Reminders of who he is, powerless, as good as dead, walking amongst the dead. And not only is he powerless, so are the people around him. It seems like the the community tried to restrain him, chain him down so that he wouldn't be able to hurt himself and others. And he would get up almost like a demonic Samson and just be able to rip off whatever cords were bounding him. But these physical shackles were no match for the spiritual chains that these demons had on him. Day and night, in endless agony, crying out, cutting himself with stones. Restless, powerless, and joyless. This 
possessed man is a graphic picture of sin in a fallen world. Endless agony. Sometimes we forget how tragic sin is. The world of constant discouragement, heartbreak, difficulty, pain, we can start to forget that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Or worse, we start to get comfortable with kind of the broken, sinful world around us and we resign ourselves to that to reality that is just the way that it is. We forget that there's an enemy who is actually seeking to devour us. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. Demons are still at work today. C.S. Lewis wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall into about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, not believe that they exist at all. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. When, when the world gets hard and we feel like we need to buckle down and just recognize that the world is the way it is, we, we begin to forget and we let our guard down. We forget that the world is in need of redemption. And we fall into cynical complacency. And that complacency leads to compromise. When we read stories like this, we're reminded that there's actually a war going on. It's not just physical wars that happen overseas. There is a spiritual war amongst us right now. There's an enemy who is against us. That when we fall prey to sin, the deceit of the world, we're not just obtaining a more comfortable life. We're actually conceding to a compromise tortured life, that that when we reject the Lord, when we fall into sin, when we allow demonic oppression to enter into our lives, we are allowing ourselves to enter into a life that will lead to our ruin. Any riches that we obtain in this life is going to expire. Our families will pass away. The pleasures of this world will come to an end. The temptation of this world, the torment and attack, from the enemy, will lead to our destruction, whether it's in this life or in the life to come. And this man is a physical example, a a living parable of the consequences of evil in this world. He's trapped in an endless cycle of pain. But then one day he looks up and he sees Jesus. You see that in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The man runs to Jesus and bows down before him. He cries out, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is the third time that you see Jesus casting out a demon in the book of Mark so far. And every single time, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. He is the son of the most high God. You know, sometimes we can think of good and evil as equal opposing forces. There's good in the world, there's bad in the world, and and there's a battle over what's going to win. And we we think that they're kind of equal in strength, like rivals. That there's somehow a real competition going on. Watch movies like Star Wars that talk about balance in the force between the dark and the light. You see one nation develop a new weapon 
that takes over and then enemy nations rush to try to catch up and, and increase their own cavalry. It's different with Christianity. See, Satan is not God's equal. There is a clear pecking order. And the rulers of this age may try to exert their power over the earth. They may try to ruin this one man's life or over God's creation. But when the Son of the Most High God comes onto the scene, all of them must bow their knee before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, they can't swear by any other power. They can't negotiate. All they can do is beg. And they beg Jesus before God that even their tormenting has to stop. And the only appeal that they have to Jesus is to appeal to his Father. In fact, when Jesus comes to shore, you see the exact reverse of what had been happening to this old man. See, demons are not the ones that are tormenting any longer. They look at Jesus and they realize that Jesus is about to torment them. How is Jesus tormenting the demons? You see that in verse 8. He commands them to come out of this man. That that Jesus comes and he's able to dictate the exact moment in which their power stops. Their day of tormenting has ended. The king had arrived. And now the king asks for the demon's name. You can see that in verse 9 there. What is your name, he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs were there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The demons identified themselves as legion. And to ask for the demon's name is more than just kind of filling out some attendance sheet. We're trying to figure out who these demons are. Jesus, when he's asking for the demon's name, is exerting his authority over the demonic world. You see examples of this in the Old Testament. When when Adam is in the garden and he names the animals, what he's doing is he's exerting his authority over creation. God told him to to subdue the earth. and, And he's showing his kingship over creation. In his naming of the animals. In, in Genesis 32, you see Jacob wrestling with, with, with God. And, and one of the things that Jacob insists on is asking for the man's name. But the guy won't give it to him. It's a, it's a power struggle because to know someone's name is to exert authority over them. The demons cannot perform an upper, undercover operation. Can't hide an anonymity can't hide their faces and sneak around in the darkness. When Jesus asks them for their name, they have to obey every command from the king, even if it means revealing their own identity. So they identify themselves as as legion, uh, uh, as as a term for, for several thousand soldiers that operate together as a unit. And now not just one unit or one demon, but a whole battalion of demons are falling to their knees and begging Jesus not to send them. So instead, they ask for permission to enter a herd of pigs, and they do. So 2,000 pigs stampede off a cliff into their death in the sea. It may go without saying, but there is a clear difference between the value of a human life and the life of an animal 
like a pig. Human beings are not just other mammals that are on the earth. They're all of equal value. In Genesis 2, you see that man uniquely is made in the image of God. God forms man out of the dirt and, and breathes his own breath of life into them. And Jesus would rather inflict death upon thousands of pigs than he would on one human being. Because human beings have eternal souls. We're made in the image of God with the ability to think rationally, to obey the Lord and to image him on the earth. So you could look at this text and know from God's word that your life is more important than bacon. But the pigs would not have been able to plummet to their deaths. The Lord did not allow them to. The, the demons had to beg Jesus to enter the pigs. And Jesus in verse 13 gives them permission to enter them. Thousands of demons are no match for Jesus. There's, there's no contest. There's no real threat. Jesus permits them and then the demons do. The only thing that the demons can do is beg Jesus to change his mind. Two weeks ago, we saw how Jesus had complete control over the physical domain. The, the storm rages, and with one word, he's able to silence the storm. Here, we see that Jesus doesn't just have control over the physical world, but he has control over the spiritual world as well. That, that he has complete ability to do as he sees fit. Which is the reason why it is impossible for a true Christian to ever get possessed by a demon. It is impossible for a true Christian to ever get possessed by a demon. Many Christians foster, to use C.S. Lewis's words again, an unhealthy interest in demonology. They obsess over demons. They wonder whether or not certain activity is demonic activity. For a while, I've been joking that whenever our sound system has been having feedback, demons, right? Um, or they're constantly on edge. They're worried as to whether or not they themselves are demon-possessed. I just want to make this really clear. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you cannot be possessed by a demon. And the reason why we know that is because demons and the Lord are not equal in their ability to possess you. They're not equal in power. They're not even in the same league. Christ is supreme over demons. Which means that if you've turned from your sin and you've placed your trust in Christ, if you've actually placed your faith in him, then the spirit of God dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, Anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, and the Lord will not cohabitate with demons. Rather, what he does is he comes into our heart, and he cleanses us, he sanctifies us, and he makes us new, and he dwells within us. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, you don't need a deliverance prayer. You don't need holy water. You don't need an exorcism. You have all that you need in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not something that you have to fear. In fact, Jesus does more than just free us from demons. God is actually in full authority over all demonic activity. There is not a single act of a single demon that does not occur under God's complete control. Verse 13 says here that the demons had to get permission from Jesus before they were allowed to enter the pigs. They had to beg Jesus because they knew that if Jesus commanded them to do something, they had to comply. See something similar in the book of Job. Job's living his life. Um, 
being blessed from the Lord, Satan goes up to heaven. And, and God points out Job, and Satan appeals to God to let him test to see whether or not Job's really faithful. And Satan cannot do anything to Job until God permitted him to do so. First time, he, he doesn't let um, Satan touch anything regarding Job's own body. And later, he does not permit him to take Job's life. All of that would not be possible unless the father allowed Satan to torment Job. Job's tragedies would not have happened unless God permitted them to happen. The demon-possessed man would not have suffered under the hand of legion unless God permitted it to happen. Even our own greatest tragedies cannot happen unless God permits them to happen. That's a really tough pill to swallow. Does the Bible really teach that God permits evil things to happen? How can a good God allow evil in the world? It's a really difficult question. And it requires a, a complicated answer. So I'm going to give a little four-point mini-sermon within my sermon to answer that question. Number one, God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. There's a big difference between being in control of the universe that has sin versus committing the sin itself. So one theologian had, has likened it to kind of Shakespeare writing a play. So when you look at the play of Macbeth, see one of his characters, Macbeth, killing another character, Duncan. Sorry, spoilers, if you haven't known. And he asks the question, who's responsible for, for Duncan's death, Macbeth or Shakespeare? And the answer is both. Both of them are responsible for Duncan's death. But I don't think anyone would agree that we should then imprison Shakespeare for killing Duncan. There's a difference between being responsible over that story versus being the one who commits the act itself. Instead, most people praise Shakespeare for writing a character like Macbeth to show us the consequences of sin. In other words, God is not the author of sin in that he does not commit sin himself. It is impossible for God to sin. And just because he's in control of the universe doesn't mean that he himself is the one who's then committing that evil. Number two, God is in complete control of everything that happens in the world. God is in complete control of everything that happens in the world. Lamentations 3, 37-38 says, Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has ordained it? Does not both Adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High. The author of Lamentations is clear. Jeremiah is saying that both adversity and good comes from God. There's not one tragedy on the planet that happens without God permitting it. Sometimes you want to sugarcoat tragedies or try to minimize God's involvement as though God didn't know about the tragedy or that he wasn't able to stop evil from leaking through the, through the cracks of his own control. And while the thought of God not being in control might seem comforting at first, as though God is somehow relatable in his inability to control things with us, that thought actually leads to a deeper tragedy. If, if God's not actually in control, then the question becomes, who is? If God's not in control, then there's actually no purpose to our suffering at all. The only 
consolation that we would have is that God is just as helpless as we are. It's like us being kids, hiding under our bed, scared of what the world will do to us. We look to our left, and Jesus is right there with us, just as scared. That's not comforting. That's actually more terrifying. Either God is in control, or we are in big trouble. Thankfully, the Bible tells us that he is. Point number three, God permits evil for good reasons. God permits evil for good reasons. Now, we don't know the sovereign plan of God. We don't know exactly how God will piece everything together for for his glory, but we know that overall he does. Romans 8.28 says that God works together all things for the good of those who love him. You see examples in which God permits evil in the world for good reasons in the Bible. One really clear example of that is in Genesis 50, the very last chapter of the first book of the Bible. In Genesis 50, uh, they tell the story of Joseph. right? And we know the story. Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He goes, he becomes second in command. Uh, they store up grain, save the world from a famine. His whole family moves into Egypt. Well, in chapter 49, Joseph's dad dies. Jacob dies. In chapter 50, his brothers freak out because they think if Joseph was holding back revenge on us because dad was still around, we're in big trouble. And so the brothers actually conjure up a lie. And they go to Joseph and they say, before your dad died, he said, forgive your brothers. Let them off the hook, right? Um, And so they conjure up that lie, and then Joseph is heartbroken when he hears it. Because they think that somehow Joseph is going to enact judgment on them. So he calls his brothers in, and this is what he says in chapter 50. He tells them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the salvation of many people. He says, you planned it for evil. God planned it for good. So here's the question. Who sold Joseph into slavery? God or Joseph's brothers? And the answer is both. Both did it. But the brothers did it out of evil, out of revenge, out of spite. They sinned by selling Joseph into slavery. But God did it for the purpose of good, to bring about the salvation of many people through that family. That's just one example. And we don't know the exact rationale for why God does everything that he does. But we know that even when evil things happen in the world, God is able to permit certain things for good reasons. And the last point, this is really the most important point when we think about evil in the world today. God cares. God cares. Tragedies are painful. Sometimes the storm rages so hard that we become completely disoriented, lost in the chaos and darkness of sorrow. There are times where we may ask God, where are you? Why are you doing this? And God doesn't always give us specific answers for every single tragedy in our life. There's no appendix in my Bible that that tells me why my dad lost his life to cancer or why so many people in the world suffer today or why he's placed specific trials in our lives. He does, however, promise that he's going to make everything right. And he proved it 
because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And we just meditated earlier that the advent of Jesus Christ is proof of his love for us. See, all of us are entrapped in suffering, pain, tragedy. It's because we as humanity has, have disobeyed against a holy God. And our world has been fractured and broken ever since. But God did not abandon us to suffer forever. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. Isaiah 53 says that he was a man of sorrows. And his sorrows weren't because of anything that he did or that he deserved. Jesus suffered in order to save us from our suffering because of our sin. Jesus died on the cross and bore the punishment that you and I deserved. And three days later, he rose from the dead, declaring authority not just over sin and death, but over every evil thing in the world. Jesus will make everything right. And he will return. Do not be mistaken. We worship a God who's both capable and caring. And we need to trust his word when he tells us that he will make everything new, that everything sad will become untrue. And as Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind. And he's too wise to be mistaken. So when you can't trace his hands, we can still trust his heart. The demons beg Jesus to stay or begged Jesus to let them stay. But the king of kings declared that they could not stay in that man a second longer. So evil gets cast out. So you would expect that when this miracle happens, people would rejoice at the good news. Instead, they respond with fear. See that in point number two, begging to leave. Begging to leave. Verse 14. The men who tended them ran off, reported in the town, in the countryside, and the people went to see what happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. I mean, what a day for the pig farmers, right? You're looking at the pigs and suddenly you see your livelihood run off a cliff. So they run and they tell the townspeople what happened. And they go and they see the formerly demon-possessed man sitting there as a normal guy. And they're all terrified. You could imagine the shock on their faces. Some of them had seen this man break chains, cry out in agony. And now he's sitting there, clothed, conscious, asking you how your afternoon was. And they're absolutely shocked. And the response to this incredible miracle is to beg Jesus to leave. They ask him to go away. I mean, their response is jarring. Why Why are they doing that? Why aren't they amazed? I mean, you see Jesus perform miracles in in other cities and, and they're begging him to stay. He's staying up all night, healing other people, teaching from his word. Why are these people asking Jesus to go? Because the issue is not with their eyes, but their hearts. The issue is not with their eyes, it's with their hearts. They they can see Jesus' power. They can see his goodness, but they don't love him. 
See, the issue isn't with what Jesus has or hasn't done, but the hardness of the hearts of these people. You know, some people have asked why God wouldn't just prove that he's God. Right? Like if God's really real, why wouldn't he just perform a miracle right in front of me right now? Why not descend from the heavens right now, prove to me with irrefutable proof that he's God, and then I'll believe in it. The thing is, I don't think God needs to do more. The issue isn't that he hasn't proven himself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. There is plenty of good resources on the validity of that claim that are worth exploring. But I think even if I had a time machine teleported you back to Israel in AD 33 and showed you the resurrection in person, that wouldn't actually fix the problem. Because the primary reason why people don't believe is not because of their eyes, but because of their hearts. It's not because what you have or haven't seen, it's because of what you love. Our hearts don't want him. And here, the Gentiles are confronted, given irrefutable evidence of Jesus' authority, and they still reject him. In fact, they beg him to leave. See, you could see every single miracle in the Bible. You could have a front row seat to the creation of the world in Genesis, the splitting of the sea in, in Exodus, the, the feeding of the 5,000 in, in the Gospels. You could sit down in your lawn chair on Resurrection Sunday, see Jesus walk out, and still not believe if your heart doesn't want him. If you're not a Christian... What would God have to do for you to believe in him? Now, I'm not saying that the doubts or questions are wrong. It's great to have questions. It's great to explore. It's great to think. There are legitimate doubts or questions that need to be answered. But behind those questions, if those get answered, if those get cleared up, what do you really want? What does your heart desire? Whatever that thing is, it will distract you. It will control you. It will possess you in every single way that those demons did this man. See, everyone is possessed. The question is, what are you possessed by? Jesus is the only master who truly cares for you, will truly love you, and will truly protect you. And if you're interested in talking more about Jesus, I'm going to be right there at the door. And there's... No other conversation I would rather have than the good news of Jesus Christ. After rejecting Jesus, the people in the Decapolis revealed themselves to be just as unclean as the pigs, spreading straight off the cliff to their deaths. Everyone rejected Jesus. That is, everyone except one. See that in our last point there, begging to remain. Begging to remain. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. The man who was demon-possessed understood the treasure that he just had obtained. The treasure wasn't the fact that he was able to just Go out and now live his own life. He doesn't thank Jesus eagerly and then proceed to go get a job and and get a house and live his life of luxury. His newfound liberty compelled him 
to want to be with his liberator. And notice there that it says that he wanted to remain with Jesus. That, that it wasn't just that the miracle was good, but the miracle worker was good. That, that what Jesus did revealed who Jesus was. And, and the same thing happens to all of us who believe. One, one difference between a fake Christian and a true Christian is whether or not you love Jesus versus loving what Jesus gives you. Christianity is full today of teachings on how Jesus can fix your problems, restore brokenness, give you healing, provide you comfort. And I love that. It's true. Jesus can absolutely do all of those things. But if you're fixated on what Jesus does for you more than you are on who Jesus is himself, then what's the difference between that and just feeding your own self-obsession? The Christian life does not fixate its eyes inward, but outward. You look out to Jesus. Jesus is not a vending machine of miracles for us to exploit. He's a loving, saving person who desires a real relationship with you. Do you love him? It's Christmas, I'm sure many of you are going to buy gifts for your loved ones. I remember being a kid and receiving sweaters. Thank you. I wasn't that interested. But when I got a gift that I really enjoyed, like one time my my parents got me a Game Boy Advance SP. Oh, man. (laughs) Right? Praise the Lord. Merry Christmas to all. It's all a good night. My parents saved and gotten me a precious gift. I take that gift. I run to my room and I lock the door. (laughs) I don't let my parents talk to me. My sinful heart tunnel visioned on that gift and I didn't see the gift giver. See, it took me years to understand that when my parents were giving me that gift, they weren't just giving me a toy. They were trying to show me how much they loved me through the gift. Right? A bouquet of flowers aren't, aren't great just because flowers are pretty. Because it reveals something about the person who gifts you the bouquet of flowers. The gift reveals the love that the person has for you. It's the same way with our Father. John 3.16 says that God loved the world so. And that word so isn't a word of exaggeration. It's not saying like God like so loves you. That word so in John 3.16 means that God loved the world in this way. They gave his one only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you truly understand the gospel, when you really grasp it, the main thing that you look at isn't everlasting life, but the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. See, this demon-possessed man understood the treasure that he possessed. And it wasn't his sin. The treasure was his savior. So he clung. He begged Jesus to remain with him. But Jesus would not let him. See that in verse 19. Let's read it again. Verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people 
and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Jesus takes this formerly possessed man and commissions him into an evangelist. Before, he was possessed by demons, tortured among the dead. And now, he sends this man, possessed by a clean spirit, now commissioned to preach the good news of God's mercy amongst the spiritually dead. Mercy. Mercy means forgiveness or or something that you did not deserve. Love that we did not earn. Forgiveness that, that we did not recoup from our own good actions. Kindness, despite our poverty. And that's the kind of blessing that you and I have all received. You know, I'm sure all of us right now this morning, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, would rather be with Jesus right now. I'm sure in our heart of hearts, we, we echo the prayer that Christians have prayed for millennia. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Right? We, we echo the words of Paul that, that, that it is better to be with the Lord, that to die is gain. And I don't know why Jesus had to come back yet. I would love if he came right now and the sermon was cut short. I don't know. What I do know is that his timing is always right. And he commissions us the same way that Jesus commissions this man, to go and share his mercy. As we leave from this place, as we encourage one another, as we go to our family, our friends, our our coworkers, and our neighbors, we get to go and share how much the Father loves us because of how much Jesus had done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your grace. We do pray, Lord, that that we would have the heart of this formerly demon-possessed man We want to remain with you. We want to be with you. But as we wait, Lord, help us to go and share this good news with others. Be able to trust you, to love you over your things. And our hearts are deceitful and fickle and change all the time. We can only do this by the strength of your spirit. So we ask that you be gracious to us. In Jesus' name.